Scripture reading this morning will be from Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. Acts 2, 37 through 41. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are, who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Good morning. It's good to be together this Lord's Day. We're thankful for the opportunity that we've had to be able to worship our God this morning. We are thankful for those who have led us in worship, those who have led us at the table and in prayers and in our scripture reading. We're thankful for those who have led us in our singing this morning as we've been able to join our voices in praise to God. And we're so thankful that you are here. We have those who are visiting with us. We're so thankful that you have chosen to come and be with us. We hope that we are able to glorify God and encourage you this morning. Be taking out your Bibles and be turning to the book of Acts, the second chapter. And Acts chapter 2 is where we will begin our study and we will be focusing our attention in Acts chapter 2 for the most of our uh, time together this morning. In the book of Acts, you have several different stories of conversion to Christ. You have many different people of different walks of life that come to have a commonality through Jesus. And we look at these conversion stories, and I think these are important stories for us to familiarize ourselves with so that we are able to understand what we need to do to become a Christian, but also so that we can be better equipped to teach those who may not be Christians. And what you will quickly notice about these different stories is that not all of them are exactly the same. They are going to have different elements. They're going to have different people. They're going to be involved at different times or different places. But they will vary also in conditions that are involved. But they do share similar events as well. Namely, the preaching of Jesus, and it culminates in baptism. Why are these ideas important? Why are these in every story? That's what I want us to explore this morning as we look at Acts chapter 2 and the conversion of the 3,000, that first Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On the first Sunday of every month, what we try to do is we try to study what we would call first principles, ideas that are essential and elementary to our faith. And so over the next few months, what we're going to do is we're going to look at several of these different conversion stories. We're going to look at here in Acts chapter 2, the conversion of the 3,000. We will look at a few others over the coming months. 
And so we want to ask ourselves as we begin here in Acts chapter 2, what caused these 3,000 people to want to convert to Christ? Have you ever wondered that question? Have you ever thought or stopped to think about why would 3,000 people all of a sudden who just 50 days earlier had been shouting crucify Him, crucify Him, and putting Jesus on the cross, what would cause them to ultimately completely have such a drastic change of heart and change in mind? I think we can find some answers this morning. And the first answer that I think that we can see is that they witnessed the power of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And then you get some description from Luke where he describes how various people, Jews from all the other nations around the Roman Empire, they had come together, they were in Jerusalem, they had been there, most of them, from uh, uh, Passover, but many of them had also traveled for the Feast of Pentecost. And so they were there and they were celebrating this Jewish festival from all parts of the Roman Empire. In verse 9 it says, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. You have all these people that have come here to Jerusalem. And what do they hear? What do they do? They hear the words of the apostles. It says there in verse 4 that the apostles were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. I want you to see the emphasis as you continue on in this section throughout the rest of Acts chapter 2. It's always on the emphasis on the words of the apostles. That's how the Holy Spirit operated, that the Holy Spirit was active and working. They saw His power in the words of the apostles. Notice in verse 6, And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And how is it, verse 8, that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? You see, they were hearing the language that they had been taught in. They were hearing these fishermen from Galilee, these apostles of Jesus Christ, these just regular old guys who had not been trained in how to speak various languages. Now all of a sudden, these people, they are hearing that in their language. They're hearing these words in their language. In verse 11, as he talks about Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. 
The power is in the words of the apostles. And notice in verse 22, as Peter begins to address the people of Israel, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. The Spirit was active on Pentecost, but I want you to see that He was active on the apostles and giving them the miraculous ability to speak in tongues or to speak in different languages. But what you see many people today, they believe that the Holy Spirit must fall on the hearers of the Gospel message. And that the power of the Spirit is not found in the Word of God. I think that's contrary to what you see as evidence in Acts chapter 2, but as you continue to think about that idea, and let's explore that, especially in light of Calvinistic teaching. In Calvinism, and what they say about the Holy Spirit, this is coming from a book called The Five Points of Calvinism, Defined, Defended, and Documented. So this, these are their own words. They say the Gospel invitation extends a call to salvation to everyone who hears its message. It invites all men without distinction to drink freely of the water of life and live. But this outward general call extended to the elect and non-elect alike will not bring sinners to repentance. I want you to notice what they just say. They say that everyone gets to hear the message, but it's not going to save everyone. It's not going to bring sinners to Christ. They continue on, Therefore the Holy Spirit, in order to bring God's elect to salvation, extends to them a special inward call in addition to the outward call. So you see what they're doing? They call that outward call the preaching of the Gospel, right? Uh, they call that the preaching of the Gospel. That everyone can hear that. But that's not effective in bringing people to Christ. You have to receive the Holy Spirit, this special call. And he says this is in addition to the Gospel message. Through this special call, the Holy Spirit performs a work of grace within the sinner which inevitably brings him to faith in Christ. And I want you to just notice the order there that you have the Spirit working and grace within the sinner and then you have faith. That's going to be important in a moment. He goes on, the Spirit creates within him a new heart or a new nature. This is accomplished through regeneration or the new birth by which the sinner is made a child of God and is given spiritual life. So just to sum up what we have just heard, what you see is that what Calvinistic doctrine teaches is that the sinner receives the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit regenerates or causes them to be born again, and then the Holy Spirit gives the sinner faith. If you follow that logic, then, and if that's true, then a person is saved and born again before they even believe. Do you see that? That's what Calvinistic doctrine teaches. That it's not going to be effective through the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God to cause someone to come to faith in Christ. It has to be a miraculous event upon the hearer of the message. And then it's a special call. Also in Calvinistic doctrine, you have those who do not receive that special call. It's un 
uh, in their idea of election that some are elect and some are not chosen. Some do not receive that call. But consistent Calvinists actually teach that a person is saved before faith. Because the Holy Spirit must be given. And the Holy Spirit is the one who gives faith. That's certainly not what we see here in Acts, the second chapter. Then you think about Pentecostalism. You know, have you ever wondered why Pentecostals get their name? Look at Acts chapter 2. In the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles, not the crowd. The crowd, they heard the apostles preaching and teaching and speaking in these languages. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was a promise, it was not a command. If you go back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, where Jesus tells his apostles, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, This was something that was going to happen to the apostles, not to just everyone in general. Contrary to Pentecostal teaching, Pentecostals believe that everyone, to prove that you're really saved, that you have to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's that second work of sanctification they believe. And the only exception that I can find in the New Testament to someone else receiving the the gift or the power to speak in tongues before they are a Christian is in the book of Acts in the 10th chapter and Cornelius and his conversion. We don't have time to spend a lot of time there, but in Acts chapter 11 when Peter is rehearsing all the events of Acts chapter 10... He says that this was a sign not of salvation of Cornelius, but that it was a sign to the Jews that God had accepted the Gentiles and that the Gospel needed to be preached to the Gentiles. And so Cornelius is really the exception that proves the rule. But what you have in Acts chapter 2 in the working of the Holy Spirit is that the Spirit falls upon the apostles, guiding their words through their preaching. That they begin to preach in the name of Jesus. They were preaching the words of salvation. And the Holy Spirit operates on our hearts in an indirect way through the means of God's Word. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? When the people heard the Word of God spoken, that is when they were convicted. It's what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 4, isn't it? In Hebrews chapter 4 and in verse 12, when he says, For the Word of God is living and active 
and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That God's Word is powerful and is able to do all of that. The words that are in our Bibles, they are able to penetrate our heart. They are able to change us. They are able to make us alive. God's Word is able to do that. It is the power of God for salvation. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Gospel is the means by which God is able to save our souls. To bring salvation into our life. And it's not that it's just the ink on a page of our Bibles that causes this to be living and active. It's that the author behind the words is living and active. And that God and His Spirit has revealed His will to us so that we are able to know and that God is the one who is able to save us. That the Word of God is backed by the authority and the power of God and His Holy Spirit. And the people in Acts chapter 2, they witnessed the power of the Holy Spirit when they heard the preaching of the Gospel through the apostles. That is one reason why they were converted, I believe. A second reason is that they were convicted about the identity of Jesus Christ. As you get into the heart of the apostles' teaching, and Peter, as he was the one who began to really uh, become the prominent speaker, in Acts chapter 2 and in verse 22, when he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. There's a few things that I think just as you begin to unravel the mystery of who Jesus is, that you see that He's a man. That He was one who walked among them. That they knew, they witnessed His power because they saw His miracles. He wasn't just any man. He was a man approved of God. He was backed by the authority and the power of God and His miracles. But then, this man was killed. They delivered him over to godless men to be crucified. And Jesus was killed. However, that's not where the story ends about Jesus. In verse 24, he says, But God raised Him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, 
since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay." You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. David, in the Psalms, spoke about the resurrection of Christ, speaking as a prophet. And Peter continues on in his, in his own words in verse 29, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. You see, the thrust of Peter's argument is that not only was Jesus a man, not only was He a man approved by God who performed miracles, He wasn't just a miracle uh, wonder. He was someone who was killed and who was raised from the dead. He was a descendant of David, an heir to the throne, and exalted to the throne of David. In verse 33, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. You begin to get a full picture of who Jesus is, don't you? But even more than that, Jesus was God. In verse 34, Peter says, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, and he quotes from Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And this was used in a neat little argument that Jesus has in Matthew the 22nd chapter to assert and to prove His deity. In Matthew chapter 22 and in verse 45, as the Pharisees have asked Jesus a question, and they've asked Him, what do you think about the Christ? Whose Son is He? Or Jesus is the one who asked that question, pardon me. And He said to them, How does David in the Spirit call Him Lord? So if the Messiah is David's son, why does David call Him Lord? As if He is over Him. A father is over his son. A father has authority over his son. But why would the father call his son Lord? Where he places the son above him. And Jesus quotes from Psalm 110 
in verse uh, in the opening of that psalm in verse 44, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies un- beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare that from that day on to ask him another question. Jesus outsmarted them. And the answer lies in who Jesus is, that He is God, that He existed before David and He is greater than David. And that's what Peter is saying here in Acts chapter 2. That we're not talking about David. We're talking about David's heir who is also the Messiah who David in his own words called him Lord because of his divine nature, because of his deity. Jesus is God. And he is the Messiah. As Peter concludes the sermon in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Anointed One of God. He is the Lord and the King. And He is God. You culminate all of this. You build it all together and you begin to see that Jesus, that the Gospel, this pronouncement of who Jesus is, it's the fulfillment of what God has been working all along that from David and even before David, that the promises of God, they have all been building up to Jesus of Nazareth. Whenever you hear the Gospel, it's a declaration of who Jesus is. It's a declaration of His humanity and His deity. It's a declaration of His approval from God, evidenced by miracles and the ultimate miracle, the resurrection from the dead. And when you hear the preaching of the Gospel, it's a claim that Jesus is sitting on the throne of God, that He rules over His kingdom, and that He is the Lord, and that He is Christ. And all of this leads to... the implication that since Jesus is in this position of authority and power, we need to obey Him. We must submit to Him. Which is exactly what you have recorded in verse 37. When the people heard this, says they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the brethren and the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? They were pierced to the heart. That expresses a deeply emotional response. Does it not? But just because someone has an emotional response to the Gospel doesn't mean that it's always going to invoke a positive response on their part. Just a couple of chapters later in Acts chapter 5, in Acts chapter 5, and in verse 33, the apostles have been preaching in the name of Jesus. And they have been called before the Sanhedrin council. 
And it says in Acts chapter 5 and verse 33, But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Just because an emotional response occurs doesn't mean that it's going to always lead to a positive response to the Gospel. Some people may reject the Gospel. Some people may want to silence the Gospel. But 3,000 that day responded in a positive manner. And they recognized that there was something they had to do. They recognized that the preaching of the Gospel and the message of Jesus and His authority and His power, that He is our King and that He is our Messiah, that it comes with an obligation. That there is a requirement. What must we do? And Peter tells them, in verses 37 and 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They had to repent of their sins and the sin very specifically of rejecting Jesus and killing Him. Jesus had said in His life in Luke chapter 13 in verses 3 and 5, about repentance, that I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Refusal to repent, which simply means to turn. It's an about face. It's a change in your heart, a change in your mind that leads to a change in your actions and in your life. If you do not repent, then it leads to condemnation. But if you repent, it leads to life. In Acts chapter 11, in Acts chapter 11, when Peter was talking amongst the Jews about the conversion of Cornelius and his household, in Acts chapter 11 and verse 18, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Repentance, when we repent of our sins, it leads to life. Repentance is going to be hard though, isn't it? Because we have to change. Change is never easy. Change is never going to be fun or pleasant. Especially when we are doing something or when we are involved in something that is perhaps enjoyable or gives, us, gives ourselves pleasure. When it brings satisfaction to our lives, repentance is going to be hard. But we need to repent of our sins 
if we have denied Christ, if we have been living in rejection of who Jesus is, if we have been in rebellion against His authority and against God and His plan of salvation, we must repent. But then we also must be baptized. Peter said, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The word baptize, it just simply means immersion. To be immersed in water. And it's a cleansing, it's a washing in a spiritual way for forgiveness of our sins. And the New Testament is very clear about the purpose of baptism, that it is for the forgiveness or the remission of sins. Later on in Acts chapter 22, as the Apostle Paul is recounting his own conversion to Christ, and when Ananias was speaking to Paul, he told him these words in Acts 22 and verse 16, Now why do you delay... Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. That when you are baptized, your sins are washed away. You become cleansed. You become spiritually clean. Washing the grime and the filth and the dirt of sin off of you and your conscience. Paul speaks about Baptism in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, in Galatians chapter 3 and in verse 26, he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Don't miss Paul's point to become a child of God, to have faith in God means that you are going to be baptized and you are going to be added to Christ or you're going to be in Christ or clothed with Christ. And then, as Peter so clearly states in 1 Peter chapter 3, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 21, he says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's nothing magical about the water. There's nothing magical about the water that you're baptized or immersed in. It's all backed by the power of God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that saves you. But baptism is essential to become a Christian, to become a child of God, to have your sins washed away. It's not, it's not taking a bath. It's not an outward ceremony. It's not a ritual that you just take a part in. But it is something that cleanses your conscience, from, washes away the guilt and the sin that you have been involved in. That's 
That's why we need to be baptized into Christ. So when are you saved? You know, some people, they believe they are saved because they would say they were baptized, but when you get into talking with them, they might say they weren't immersed in Christ. They were, they might have, when they were a baby, been sprinkled or poured. Or maybe they were immersed in water, but they did not do so for the right reasons. I want to be very clear, you have to be baptized for the right reasons, understanding the truth of what is in baptism, what the Scriptures teach. In Acts chapter 19, I think that becomes very clear. Because Paul, he has arrived at the city of Ephesus and he has found some people who are saying they are Christians, that they are disciples, they are trying to follow Christ, it appears. But they had never heard of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul begins to inquire of them. In verse 3, Paul says, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in Him who was coming after Him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, you can't be taught wrong and baptized right. You have to hear the truth of the gospel. You have to understand what you are doing. And yes, John's baptism was immersion, but it was not sufficient just because it was immersion. Baptism must be joined in the name of Jesus, the Messiah. That is the only baptism that is sufficient to save us from our sins. So when are you saved? Well, it's not before faith and when the Holy Spirit falls upon you. Neither are you saved by a trust that does not act or obey the people in Acts chapter 2. They said, what must we do? You are saved when you have faith that demonstrates itself through obedience to the call of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, and in verse 40, Peter says, And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. When people respond in obedience to the gospel, to the requirements and the conditions of the gospel, then someone is saved. So maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I've never been baptized. You might be thinking, am I ready to become a Christian? I want you to ask yourself a few questions with me this morning. Have you reached an age of accountability? 
And what I mean by that is simply, are you able to hear God's Word? Are you able to hear the message of Scripture? Are you able to understand it and understand that what it requires of you? And are you willing to obey it? In Matthew chapter 13 and in verse 9, Jesus he makes the statement, He who has ears, let him hear. And if you have the ability to hear and understand and process and recognize that you need to be forgiven of your sins, then you might be reaching that age of accountability where you are going to be held responsible to obey the Gospel. So have you reached that age of accountability? Also, another question that you need to ask yourself, have you sinned? Do you recognize that you have sinned? Do you recognize that you need forgiveness from God? Also, do you believe in God? Do you believe that God exists? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And the King that you must obey? And are you ready to do what God says? Are you ready to obey the Lord? If you can answer yes to those questions, then you are ready to become a Christian. That is what led 3,000 souls to be converted to Christ. 3,000 people were converted on that first Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection. They witnessed the power of the Holy Spirit and through the apostles they that message was revealed to them. They learned about the true identity and nature of Jesus of Nazareth. That He is God, that He is your Lord, He is the Christ, and He is your Savior. He is your King, and we must all be obedient to Him. They learned that they must repent of their sins and they learned that they must be baptized to be forgiven of their sins. This morning, are you willing to let the words of the Gospel touch your heart to prick you and convict you? And are you ready to become a Christian? Are you going to let those words of the Gospel convict you and lead you to faith and obedience to your Savior, Jesus Christ? If so, will you repent and be baptized today? Maybe you have done that, but you've not been living faithfully. Will you not come back to the Lord? If we can help you in some way, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?